We are back live in person. Miss us last week. Uh, and the week before, I had to do a pre record at the last minute. Um, and I'm si- okay, you are listening to Behind the Lens, and I'm watching Pam is doing weird and wondrous things in the booth already. Um, but welcome to Behind the Lens. Obviously, we cannot take a week off. We get very befuddled over here at times. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Um, Pam, 15 minutes. Um, We already have writer-director Michael Melsky calling in. Uh, Michael, we're going to get him live on the air at the quarter-hour mark uh, because we're going to kick off this week's show with uh, Pavarotti and my exclusive interview with Ron Howard. Um, At the half-hour mark of the show, we're going to have Australian actor Andrew Steele talking about his new film, Wish Man. It is his first North American film. But let's get back to saying hello to all of you. Um, This is, I can tell, I can tell this is going to be one of those shows, guys. Uh, (laughs) You are listening to Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line. Talking about movies, television, interviewing writers, directors, actors, cinematographers, sound uh, sound designers, sound mixers, costumers, composers, and everything in between. Um, you can find us every Monday right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad around the globe, uh, and of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. we got a lot of new stuff up there, Uh, a lot of new interview stuff. Uh, We've got a wonderful uh, little exclusive uh, from Ron Howard on there talking about his father and his father's final film, feature film performance, Appleseed, which we're going to talk a lot more about next week. Uh, It's kicking off Dances with Films Film Festival on the 13th in Hollywood, and you're also going to hear, I spent did a two-hour interview with Clint Howard on Saturday. So next week, it's going to be all about the Howard family, I think, uh, and and the uh, director, writer-director Michael Worth uh, talking about that film. But today, we're going to kick off today talking about Pavarotti. I know most of you, when I first heard about Pavarotti as a documentary, immediately... I, my mother's voice was running through my head. My mother was never an opera fan, and she always said that opera singers sound like dying dogs. Uh, I kid you not. Uh, but anybody that has ever heard Pavarotti or, or th- do through his three tenors stage, uh, incredible voice, uh, incredible performer. And now, thanks to Ron Howard, we get to meet Pavarotti the man in this exquisitely told, emotionally beautiful documentary. It is, in a word, bellissimo. Uh, the detail and depth w- with which Ron tells this story of the man behind the voice is not only told with an objective eye, but a caring one. And by film's end, you do feel as if you really knew Luciano, that you sat at the table and ate pasta with him. You were in the kitchen while he was cooking and sharing laughs. Uh, this, the storytelling sensibility and the structure of the film uh, with a through line that's created very much like an opera, a three-act opera. And the very specific, carefully chosen arias 
and the specific passages within them and the editing within that don't necessarily fall into chronological order, but they speak to moments in Pavarotti's life. Uh, it is an amazing, amazing documentary. I also had a chance to speak with the sound mixer, Chris Jenkins, uh, at, at great length. That interview, if we don't have part of it on today's show, that is going to be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net and probably you'll hear it on uh, Behind the Lens uh, radio show in coming weeks uh, because the entire thing is done in Dolby Atmos. They had original recordings. Uh, some things had to be built up sonically. Uh, and it's it's interesting to hear Ron and Chris both talk about how you work in the Atmos format with these uh, many mono recordings of the day and some of them not in the best shape. But we'll get into that at another time. For right now, though, let's take a listen to my exclusive sit-down with Ron Howard talking about Pavarotti. My first thought back to them was Bellissimo. Wow. Oh, well, Ron, thank you. what you have done here is amazing. And most notably with this story, number one, the through line going through it, the, the three-act opera yeah, yeah, yeah. I love. Thank you. you. You picked up on that. Oh, God, yeah. Wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm curious, not only how you develop the through line within these three acts, mm-hmm. but the most difficult part, and I, what I found to be the most telling part, were your musical selections and where you placed each one of these songs mm-hmm buttressing what was happening in his life in his life yeah because the songs his arias didn't necessarily match up with his life as he performed them right but you have found the perfect arias for each moment of his life i thank you that that was a um an early notion that we kept refining and refining and refining but i kept saying that one way to help audiences understand how personal and powerful opera can be is if we can use the arias to help tell his story. If we can kind of make an opera about Pavarotti using those arias. And then we, what happened is that almost intuitively we found performances uh, where he was roughly the age that he was lived that of 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 uh, uh, that that he performed at at the age in which mm-hmm. he was living through mm-hmm. either the triumph or the moment of despair yes. or whatever it was that the aria was dramatizing, because his life was was operatic, yeah. and my my premise as a director was I just feel that if we choose arias at that time that we're finding performances where he was connecting just a little bit more yeah. and taking it beyond technique in terms of mm-hmm. the, what he was uh, giving audiences. Well, that's one of the great things. It's like, thanks to this, and it was one of my notes, we understand the emotion behind the technical perfection. Uh-huh. It, uh, thanks to what yeah. you have put together well, thank here. Thank you, thank you. Well, this is the thrill of, of working with true stories. And it started for me with Apollo 13, mm-hmm. which was the first movie that I did based on real events. And I was, I was pretty mortified that it was going to sort of limit my ability to be creative. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be the opposite. Mm-hmm. It was stimulating. Um, and, uh, and, of course, that's a, that's, if you look at it, that 
that's one of those stories that, um, you know, uh, if you tried to write it, everybody would say, oh, nonsense, they would never survive. But they did. So that's why you tackle a true story. Yeah. And with Pavarotti, it, I, my curiosity was just piqued by um, this, this guy. And then, and then the sort of the storytelling challenge as a director mm-hmm. was, let's let audiences understand how personal and powerful these arias, these songs can actually be. Yeah. Um, because, of course, they, they were popular entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, mo- when they were originally written, yeah, you know, and Pavarotti knew this in his village. Mm-hmm. Opera was for them; it was yeah. for the people. It was for his father, the baker, you know, yeah. and and uh, and so when he could be the ambassador um, that could that could take this art form to a larger audience, to the masses, as he would say, uh, the uh, you know he he did not look back; he just went for it. Yeah, and of course that fits right in with his early days as a teacher. Yeah. Because he was still teaching the world Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the beauty of opera. That was one of the things that we really could only touch on. He was a very dedicated teacher. You know, we showed him a couple of times in the documentary, but that was always, you know, something that he was committed to. Uh But I I think you convey that through the rest of the film Mm -hmm. with his dedication to his craft, to mentoring, Uh to giving master classes. Yeah. Much like what you're doing now with master classes. Oh, that was fun, fun, that master class. Hard work. Really hard work. But they're very conscientious and thorough. And um, I've I've been uh, uh, mortified to actually watch it, so I haven't seen it. But I'm getting a lot of good feedback on it, so I, I hope it's actually useful. did. Right? Yes. Wow. Yours. Yes. I haven't looked at anybody mm-hmm. else's. I paid the money and I looked at yours. <laughs> wow. And I loved yours. Well, I hope it's useful. I hope it's useful. It's for very, people. very useful. Yeah. For for a critical eye, it's very, yeah. very useful. Yeah. I yeah. loved it. I think oh, thank you were fabulous. Oh, thank you. I, I, yeah. But you know, hand in hand, you also add this beautiful layer here with your transition shots. Uh-huh. Number one, how you build up Pavarotti. He's humble. He's a family man. He's a, he loves his, his daughters. Right. He loves his wife. First half of the film, you're building up, and then you wait right. to give us the demons. Yeah, yeah. The infidelity. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and I love that structure. But through this all, through all of this, you have, for your transitions, right. you do a lot of nature scenes, uh-huh. and they're beautiful. You keep reminding us of the beauty. Yes. And well, I early on I just felt like again, it's if we could make an opera about Pavarotti, um, well, operas are beautiful, yeah. and um, and a lot of the video footage we had to work with was pretty raw, mm-hmm. and some of the Super Eight stuff. And so, any time we could take a moment and remind us that that you know he was from a, a part of the world that was very beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and that 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 was informing uh, yeah. his love of life. Um, that that was going to be um, that that was going to be useful and 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 yeah we, we really definitely um, tried to think of it musically in mm-hmm. terms of movements and breaks mm-hmm. uh, and uh, give it that kind of that that shape that it, you know it's almost like you know it's almost like you're experiencing an you know an evening at the at, a, at, at an opera house yeah I mean I have to say you know Paul Crowder your editor he's remarkable oh Ron yeah. yeah. There is a lyricism yeah. to the editing. He's also a drummer, you know, so, and a director, and he's, and he's directed Docs as well. And so uh, he's he's one of these guys uh, who's uh, very earthy, mm-hmm. very unpretentious, and yet really an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and man, he he's uh, knows how to work with music, 
and and ideas mm -hmm. and and um, and and the, and the rhythms that um, you know that'll convey those ideas. Mm -hmm. But you know, an even greater part of this is your sound design, which. Yeah. You know, Chris I, Jenkins. I bow to you for choosing to do Dolby Atmos. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank and you. I also am so impressed with, because I've talked at great length about Dolby Atmos with Tim Hoganocker over at Formosa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm familiar, Tim always said one of the greatest challenges is when you're doing the sound Dolby Atmos, you still have to worry about capturing the intimacy. Yes, right. And you don't want to just drown people. That's it. And I... Love, love. Thank you. The sound mix and the design here. Well, Chris Jenkins, who also did the Beatles documentary, um, and and who I've worked with a number of times. Right. And he's, you know, he's an Oscar-winning um, mixer. All, all the all the the composers, you know, love it when he's going to mm -hmm. mix a movie because he's great with music. And and, and he called me, um, and he said, "I just read you're going to do Pavarotti. You're not thinking about any other mixer, are you?" Uh, and I said, "No, Chris, no." Uh, but he does these as a labor of love because it's always a distraction from uh, you know a bigger, um, better-paying project you could be doing. But he really throws himself into into the, into these projects. I find, and uh, and it was very important that we um, um, you know again tr try to convey to to audiences just how sort of visceral uh, and and um, a stirring. Uh, mm -hmm. That the experience of hearing these people mm -hmm. who can reach these notes, yeah. um, uh, what it, what it can mean to an audience, mm -hmm. um, and also the the sort of the kind of a Olympic level uh, athleticism uh, of what's required to actually, mm -hmm. you know, to actually do that, know, do that, <laughs> make the, make those sounds, uh, and uh, and and still act, still perform, still emote. Um, and, and convey the drama of the of the of the you know of the, the of the opera. Yeah, I mean the, the sound is just spectacular from the opening, where we have that beautiful the beautiful image of Madonna, and you hear the birds yeah. and the, the different birds yeah. chirping, and that right away. Yeah. Well, you know it was a real gift for us, and, and with documentaries you find that these these things kind of keep coming, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, um, the uh, uh, in this case, we had a few late surprises with uh, on the Beatles doc that really you know changed things. But <clears throat> with uh, on this one, that Amazon um, footage didn't uh -huh. come in till very late. We didn't find it till late, oh, and suddenly wow. it became our opening. Um, and it was uh, you know it said so much about him on a pilgrimage. And of course, the whole metaphor of. The aerial shots of the yeah. Amazon, yeah. the windy, the twist and turns of yeah. life. Yes, and and on a pilgrimage for his art, you know, and I think his life was was that. Oh, I mean that that was spectacular. Mm. Now I'm curious, how challenging because you have so many interviews here. Right. How challenging was it to get some of these interviews? Now I'm sure that Bono was just overjoyed. Well, he and, and by the way, Bono very respectfully declined to do the Beatles. He said, I love them, I've spoken about them, I'd love to help, I don't think you need my help, and I'm just so swamped, I'm sorry. Very polite. This one, he just leapt into it. And, and, and you know, and I think, I think his interview was a, was, a, was a real gift because he, you know, it's interesting to hear somebody um, as articulate and as successful mm -hmm. um, um, and, and as thoughtful 
as Bono tell us sort of why we should respect Pavarotti, why he loved him and why we should too. And why he essentially was defending him, defending him to the critics of Pavarotti's voice. I love that. In his later years. And when he gets so passionate about life, this is life yeah. that is coming from yeah. his voice. Well, you know he's also talking about himself a little yes. bit. I mean, it, well, oh, yeah. inadvertently, I'm sure, but uh, uh, that was remarkable. I thought the family was incredibly mm-hmm. courageous because, and, and you know, and they've, they, the more I think about it, I feel like they've, They've really given. They've done something very constructive by through their courage, mm-hmm. because they really give a lesson in in, in sort of wisdom, perspective, and even forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and nobody was prompting that. That's um, nobody coached anyone. No one knew what to expect. Um, this is this. It was emotional for them, but this is yeah. this is what they had to say. This this is this is. Uh, and that was about 98% of my exclusive with Ron Howard talking about Pavarotti. Pavarotti is in theaters this Friday, and it is in theaters that have Dolby Atmos as the sound system. So you will get the full experience of hearing this beautiful, beautiful film in addition to seeing it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and for those of you that... Also listen to George Pinocchio off the red carpet. George and I did a, a summer preview uh, last last week that is now up and out as well. And we both talk about Pavarotti and how much we love this documentary and Ron Howard. But moving on, one of the most eager guests I've ever had, Michael Melsky. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, Michael, I am thrilled to have you. The Child Remains. Oh, my God, you scared the bejeebus out of me. (laughs) Thank thank you. This is one creepy, creepy movie. And it's not that it's a horror film with hacking and slashing going on every 30 seconds. This is such a psychological buildup, and you and the work of your editor, of Thorben Beeger. Yeah. Oh, just you've got that paced and timed perfectly with just snap cuts to imagery. Oh, right on. Um, I am in love with this film, Michael. Oh, sweet! That's great to hear. You know where did and this is based on. True incidents. Now, I had heard, yeah. I had heard about, um, and I knew something about what happened in Ireland and Scotland back in the 1800s yeah. about homes for unwed mothers and killing the babies and burying the babies or parceling them out for exorbitant fees for adoption. I did not know about the Butterbox babies in Nova Scotia, and that's what yeah. that's what you're really basing. The Child Remains. You wrote and directed this. Did you learn about yeah. this growing up? Did you stumble upon it? Did somebody say, hey, Michael, you got to check this out because it'll make a cool movie? <laughs> uh, when you go, Nova Scotia is a very creepy place. And uh, we, we have uh, a very creepy folklore. So, so you kind of grow up with the story. And... and when it came time to make a, a horror 
to make my first horror film, I I knew I wanted to tap into Nova Scotia's creepy folklore. Well, you certainly did a great job of that. And I love the context with which you tell this story. You pick this seemingly wonderful, good-looking couple, and they're going away. Yeah. They're going away for the wife, Ray, going away for her her birthday weekend. And yeah. she, she suffers from PTSD. She's a former journalist, obviously covered hard crime, war, that kind of stuff, uh, and suffers from it. Husband Liam. Um, who I have to say looks so much like Colin Farrell. It's spooky. Um, <laughs> I'll tell him that. But, you know, and he's a musician or a quote unquote wannabe musician. Uh, but here they are. They've gone away and they go to this charming little bed and breakfast inn. And slowly it seems that Ray has a gift of a psychic gift of when she touches things or steps in spots, she gets flashes. Uh, which obviously, yeah. without you getting into it in the script, conveyed a large part of what probably caused her PTSD as a reporter. Yeah, I was very intrigued by the idea that 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 she would be triggered by by the house, mm-hmm. and that the house has a form of PTSD as well because it's. It's the the haunting is related to all the things those walls have seen. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you do so beautifully, because at first we think that, okay, she's really just having a hard time, that she really does need a weekend away. It's a good thing that she's yeah. on leave from work. Um, but then slowly, you really pace this out well with disclosing things about the house about Liam, who is not everything that he seems to be, and yeah. and of course about our proprietoress, Monica. Um, I have to say, Shelley Thompson, who plays uh, Monica, she is outstanding. Out, she, yes, she is. That smile that she plasters on her face from beginning to almost to the end, that's creepy enough. Yeah, she's mostly known for her role in the trailer park boys with the comedy on netflix and so this is quite a radical departure for her i mean she's so gifted that i i knew that she would absolutely nail it and you and you keep this basically to it's basically a a three-hander but then you also throw in giza kovacs who plays the handyman at the inn shall we say yeah yeah, we don't want to get we don't want to give anything away about him, so we'll just call him the handyman. <laughs> you know, how did you when you sat down to write this, obviously you knew you were going to direct this. That was your goal. So, how did you go about crafting this script with your visuals in mind? Because you could tell this story and the visuals could have gone sideways in so many different respects, but you have them so carefully integrated here. So I'm curious about your process, Uh, you know, wearing those dual hats of writer director. Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, I mean, we made this in Canada for, for a million dollars, essentially, Uh, which is about 700,000 of your money. 
And it looks it so looks I, like a ten million dollar movie, if not more. Well, thank you. We have a great crews and great artisans here in the film industry, so uh, that'll mean a lot to them. Uh, you know, I had to be very, very planned out in every aspect, uh, from from casting to crewing to visualizing the film, and that uh, necessitated having a very clear vision because we didn't have any money to spare on any any whims that I might have had. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I believe in. I believe in the Hitchcockian tradition of suspense and the way that his, his films were so meticulously plotted out. And it's really, uh, it's, it really is about the Canadian system and making use of what you have. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly do. And, of course, you know, Ken LeBlanc, your cinematographer, your director of photography, your visual tonal yeah. bandwidth is outstanding, and that really is what steeps us. His angles, you know, you've got some beautiful dutching in here, and then we look at your lighting. Mm. We look at your lighting in the upstairs in the upstairs room that it's like a child's playroom, and the yeah. and your production design with the positioning of items within that room. But you've got a whole different lighting palette in there. And then you have mm. poor Ray, uh, you know, is, is it live or is it Memorex moments? And you take on this a, a beautiful icy blue tone. Uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, what you and Ken have put together visually, uh, you know, ju- is just outstanding. What, you know, what Thank ki- you so much. What kind of visual references did you look to to come up with this, to- this visual tonal bandwidth of the film? Well, we uh, we looked at films like uh, uh, the the Changeling, uh, the Omen, uh, the Fog. We, we I, I'm really into the tradition of seventies atmospheric atmospheric horror, like The Shining, like Rosemary's Baby, which is a little bit it's it's, it's a sixties film, but it kind of predicates what happens in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So we looked at the grace uh, and it, it, and we took sort of, you know, what the, the best I thought of the contemporary films being made mm-hmm. and all filtered through that sort of Hitchcockian tradition. Yeah, because visually, when you, when you take Ken's visual work and then you put that with Thorben's editing, and it's just, it is a match made in heaven. It is so yeah, stunning. Yeah. And that's what really drives the terror and the jump out of your skin moments in this film. And then you punctuate, Sweet. then you punctuate that with your score. Yeah. I, I can't believe for the, the amount of money that you made this film for that, <laughs> that you have such high production values, Michael. Um, talk to me uh, about working with Asif and your, uh, talk to me about working with Asif on your score uh, because it's not your, tra- oh, yeah. it's not your traditional horror movie score. No, again, we look to the, the great, we look to, uh, 
probably the the best Canadian horror film. It's it's not as well known in the U.S., but it's called The Changeling with George C. Scott, mm-hmm. and it's got an incredibly creepy score. And but we we also looked again to uh, Carpenter's The Fog because of the maritime influence. Mm-hmm. And, and although we're not a coastal film, I've, I've been told it does feel very much like you're in you're in rural Nova Scotia, where the ghosts are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it also the whole film. It, it also has a very a, the look and feel of a lot of the northeastern seaboard of the United States as well. Uh, I mean that this film yeah, it no- could very easily have been transplanted into the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. Or, <laughs> or in upper, and I often wonder about some of the things that I've seen down there, but, <laughs> but there's a universal feel to this as well, and that's something I really like because it's anybody can tap into this. You know, it's it's funny we've we, we've been at film festivals all pretty much all over the world, and it really people in Catholic mainly Catholic countries respond particularly strong to this. Uh, I'm talking about Spanish-speaking countries, and and we've had many, many festival appearances in the UK where, as you mentioned, Scotland and Ireland have this tradition of maternity homes uh, and babies turning up in the sewers uh, 100 years later. Mm -hmm. So... So it, it does certainly have a universal, uh, more, probably a more universal impact in terms of its content than, than, I, than, I, than I realized when I was writing it. So, mm-hmm. You know, very key to this um, is your location and specifically the house that you use for yeah. the, the, the Mercy Inn. Uh, you know, how difficult was it to find that location? Because... That house has to have a very, very specific look, both on the exterior and the interior. Yeah, it was it was really a lucky find. Uh, the, it's called the Briarwood Bed and Breakfast in Nova Scotia. If you're ever visiting, uh, the Con and Rose who run the Bed and Breakfast have some uh, memorabilia from the film there. They were terrific hosts, and uh, and really got seemed excited about the idea that we we were making a scary movie in their in their backyard. So, uh, yeah, it was it was it was a really lucky find. I mean, it's of course knowing that it's that it's you know in the film. After seeing this film, I don't think I would want to stay there. <laughs> you know. I sold them on the idea that uh, the Lizzie Borden House in uh, Springfield is is one of the hottest tourist uh, tickets in the Eastern Seaboard. Well, that's true. It is, of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to go see the Lizzie Borden House? But you know, you're not sleeping in it. This one, you know, to go there and actually sleep in it, um, it might be nice to wander by. Uh, but I don't know about actually sleeping in it. Um, so that's, <laughs> but what, how exciting is this for you? Because the film has been on the festival circuit for quite some time. 
you finally have this distribution deal. The film is actually going to be available tomorrow and then in theaters on Friday, I think. Is that right? Um, I, I, I would check with uh, uh, Karen about that. Yeah. But I, I believe it's yeah, it's uh, being it's, it's yep, it's being released uh, yeah, on demand, so. yep in in L A and select markets on June seventh, and also on Friday it's going to be iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, Google Play, Fandango, now Xbox and cable. Uh, yeah, is it is it exciting for you to finally have it at this point and see oh, it God, yeah. and see it now officially out in the world? Yeah. So you know, it's, you know we we've had we've had so many festival runs in the U.S. and everyone keeps keeps asking when is this going to be available commercially? Well, this it is... took a long time for us to find the the right distributor. We had you know probably a couple dozen offers mm-hmm. over over a year and a half. Oh, and, I'm uh, sure. And it's and uncorked. Finally, the right. The right distributor found us. Well, I think Uncorked is a perfect distributor for this film. I'm I'm yeah, a, I'm a huge so. fan of their of what they distribute and their distribution process. So I was really excited to see that they are the ones that picked up the Child Remains. So now tell me, are we going to have a sequel? <laughs> that depends. I'm looking for a sequel. I'm looking for a DVD I... because I must own this for myself. <laughs> So Wait, I'm looking, we, but a sequel. We need a sequel, Michael. Oh my God! Well, you know what? If it if it if it does really well, I've I've got two or three different ideas. <laughs> and it, you know, you you've seen the film, and you know I've left it open to a sequel. So. Uh you absolutely have. And my mind reels at the possibilities. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Michael, we're all out of time. Um. I have to move on to our next guest today. Will you please come back on the show again? I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God! I want to. I want to talk more about this film, but also some of the other other films that you've done as well. Um, Absolutely, yeah. You just have such a great eye for storytelling. Um, Tonally, from a story standpoint, and emotionally, Uh, and. I want my sequel. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'll work on that. Oh, Michael, thank you so, so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Okay, great questions. All the best. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. Okay, see ya. Bye-bye. And that was writer-director Michael Melsky talking about The Child Remains. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's fabulous. See it, see it, see it this Friday. And now... I'm so excited to welcome this wonderful, wonderful man to Behind the Lens, Andrew Steele. Hello. Hello there. Hey, how you doing? Well, Thanks so much for having me on, on the pillow. Oh, my God. I am thrilled to have you on the show, Andrew. And I am in oh. love with Wishman and your performance as, as Frank Shankwitz the founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is knowing your background and your philanthropy and your Flicks for Change uh, festivals. This is this is a marriage made in heaven for you to be playing the character of Frank. 
Yeah, he's definitely an inspirational man, and uh, it's an absolute, you know, honour to. Is, am I crackling up in your? Oh, uh, uh, or is it just me? Uh, uh, Does it sound uh, okay to you? It, how's it sound, Pam? I'm bo- we're bothering Pam in the booth. Let's make Pam do work. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what she's supposed to do. No, it sounds okay. It sounds. Yeah. It sounds okay. Yeah, she's, sounds okay. Yeah, she's in there playing right. with things. So, are you? Don't tell me you're calling. Are you? You're not calling from Australia, are you? No, I'm not. But I'm using my Apple Airbuds, and that's uh-huh. the first time I've done an interview with the Airbuds. So I'm thinking maybe I'll just scrap that. I'm getting a bit of feedback as much as I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> uh, there we go. Oh no, it's the same thing. That's oh okay. well, that's actually, right. you actually sound better on our end. Well, there you go. That's great. Now That's it sounds now it, in the eye of the beholder. Now you sound like you're in the room. Here. You, you sound like we'll you're here. Back. You sound like you're here in the room. So Fantastic. We'll, uh, make, we'll turn around. Who's behind you? Well, wonderful. Yeah. Surprise. I I no, I would love no, to have you sure. in the room behind me, Andrew. Uh, you know, how <laughs> how did uh, first of all, number one, the film on the whole, Theo Davies, writer director, amazing job. This is your first North American film. You are Correct. Cl- classically trained stage. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Uh, mm. And then you are surrounded here with a cast that is, everybody will recognize this cast. I mean, you've got Faye Masterson, uh, who, uh, you know, was such a beloved character on The Last Ship. Uh, you got Frank Whaley, who's been around forever. Danny Trejo. Uh, Carrie Scott, whom I know, Carrie has a little part as as a doctor. Bruce Davison, mm-hmm. Dale Dale Dickey has done everything known to mankind in film. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you've got two of the greatest cameo tongue in cheek roles ever with Larry Wilcox and, and Robert Pine. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, that, that was a, that was a great little scene where they're talking self referentially about ships. That's. <laughs> And, uh, and and your character and, of Frank just happens to be a motorcycle cop. You know, how fun was that to work that little bit out there? Oh, that was incredible. We yeah, were riding on the bike and, you know, it's all the original 1980, you know, Arizona Highway Patrol motorcycles. And to be able to, you know, get, I give him the keys. You know, the first time I met Frank, he asked me if I rode a motorcycle and I, I told him I did, but... You know, that was, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get the role. Um, so, and I went through motorcycle training and all that, but to be given the keys and to be riding this old Harley that was just like pristine and just epic. And then there I am with the big handlebar moustache and in my leathers and stuff. It was, uh, yeah, it was a really fantastic experience. And the whole, the whole shoot was just a dream come true. As you mentioned, all these, you know, A-list celebrities that that I that are in you know they have a scene or two that that I get to play with them and and just learn so much from them all because they're all seasoned seasoned vets Mm -hmm. and uh, you know as you mentioned it's my first leading role in a in a U.S. feature it was uh, as a dream come true. You know how did because obviously Frank Shankwitz, you know from Chicago area grew up raised worked Arizona. How how does a wonderful Aussie like yourself get a role like that and then get rid of your Aussie accent and sound like you were born and bred here in the States? Right. Well, 
that's uh, that's formal training right there. That's six years of of you know nine or six five days a week at you know acting school doing dialect training and vocal technique and all that stuff. But you know um, you know I met Frank out at an event one night and uh, I was telling him about uh, you know as you touched on before Flicks for Change, which is my socially conscious film festival. Um, I was telling him that I was running that, and uh, you know that I have, you know, he was saying, you know, that kind of aligns with Make a Wish, and you know, somebody like you should be playing me in this movie, and uh, you know, that was music to my ears, and I was like, sure, I'll do it, same movie, I'll play it. What am I going to do, you know? And um, and that 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 was the nucleus, and then obviously I auditioned, and you know, Theo and uh, and uh, Greg Reed, who's the you know key producer, you know, they they. I thought I could act all right, and then, you know, with Frank's blessing, I was, you know, given the role of a lifetime. You know, how long was the process between the first time you met Frank before there was actually a script and they said to you, hey, Andrew, you want to play Frank? Well, I mean, the first time I met Frank, he said, hey, Greg, this guy should play me in the movie. Um, And so that was a good start. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I, you know, I, uh, I got given the script and I read it that night. And then the next day I called Theo with me and my thoughts and, you know, I'd scribbled notes all over the place because, you know, there was all this incredible in, emotional kind of arc that I was going through and I was just documenting it as I went. Mm-hmm. I kind of went through the script with Theo and just had all the points that, you know, resonated with me. And, um, you know, he obviously, you know, liked how engaged I was and into the story. And he said, well, why don't you come down to San Diego next week and, and meet with Greg and myself and we'll do a little audition. And, and uh, yeah, so it was, um, yeah, we got that. That was how we kind of got in. But it was a, it was a year later that we actually started shooting. Mm. So they kind of said, yeah, you're the guy. But there was no contract signed and it was right. talking about getting more money in. And I'm like, well, hopefully we get money in, but not too much more money that Matt Damon now gets to play the lead. <laughs> Um, you know, so that kind of thing, like, you know, but yeah, a year going by and, you know, these guys have been at their word and they, you know, it was a handshake deal for a year. Um, but you know, I've been around the traps enough to know that, you know, a lot can change and, but you know, to their credit, they were absolutely true to their word and, uh, that handshake deal stood, stood fast until a month before we shot and actually signed the contracts and and we were, you know, all in the ball. Wow. You know, how how involved was Frank in the filmmaking process? And more importantly, how closely did you work with Frank to get a feel of who he was at that point in his life and the hardships yeah. that he had to endure as a young boy growing up that helped shape him become who he became? Yeah, well, I think he was so, so involved with every step of the way. You know, he was officially credited as you know, location scout and, and, you know, like technical advisor. So, you know, with regards to you know, how I'd get on and off the, the police motorcycle and, you know, where my eyes would be, as, you know, at what stage would I be looking back to the oncoming traffic and then back to the perpetrator and then where my hand is and then, you know, you know the, my tone of voice and all that kind of stuff. He was a, he was a brilliant wealth of knowledge because he'd lived it. You know, he'd been an undercover cop you know, wrestling with the, the Hells Angels, you know. Wow. Like, rolling the dirt, like, you know, every, every day, like, to, to be dirty, to go in as a bikey undercover. He'd be checking 
under his car every night and every morning for bombs that have been put there. Like, this was like 30 years of this guy's life. So he was right in oh, it. Wow. And I was lucky that, you know, he'd written a book also called Wishman. Um, so I could read that and really get an in-depth into his psyche and what it was like having this, you know, traumatic, uh, you know, childhood where effectively he was kind of raised by a mentor um, who he used to work for because his, you know, his, his parents' situation was, was really strained through a, uh, a broken home. Um, so, but yeah, you know, I, I'd have long chats with Frank, you know, um, and we'd go through, uh, you know, all the stories from his mum to like his police escapades and, you know, all the hijinks he kind of got up to as a motorcycle cop. Um, not all of them we could put in the film. Um, but, um, you know, and just, just, yeah, and also his accent. So he's from Prescott, Arizona, so I had to do this kind of drawl that's going on. It's like a, not, not a southern kind of thing, but it's, a, you know, something like that. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, unique to his dialect. So working with a dialect coach and just getting to know how he sounded, but then really understanding his essence so I could portray that on the screen. Mm-hmm. Now, did you read his book before or after uh, you officially got uh, got the script and, and had the part? Uh, well, it was after, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was necessary. I don't know if it was released before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we were in discussions with you know, doing the role and then it kind of came out. So I got like... You know, he sent me an e-copy before the book had actually been published. So that was a really great insight. A great read, too. You guys should go check it out. Wishman by Frank Shankwit. I've already ordered a copy. I didn't know that there was a book until I found out about this, uh, you know, found out about the film. And anytime I see that a book is involved, I always have to get it because I always, I love to see... Uh, compare the adaptations and also get more insight into, especially something like this, into mm. who the who this person is, or who these people are. Yeah. And here, a large a large part of that is due to your performance, because you really draw us into the character of Frank. You really bring us along on his journey. Uh, and the attitude shift that you bring with the growth as Frank, you know, starting off as a cop and really a chip on his shoulder um, because of the, the, the hand that life had really dealt him. Uh, you, really, you played that so beautifully that, you know, as, you're wa- as we're watching, it was very obvious that um, you know, Frank's mother's, her impact on him was something that he had not, he did not shake and the things mm. that she had done. And then, but then we see you after, after the, after the motorcycle accident and the snarky, the, you know, the humor is going to, the humorous notes, uh, that you bring, but then we get a shift with the introduction of Kirby Bliss Stanton and her character of Kitty, we start mm-hmm. to really see a great shift. And you really, you uh, you are so authentic in the emotions that you bring for each of these stages in Frank's life. It's it's a joy to watch you play this man. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a joy to hear you say all of that. That was amazing. Thank you for watching the film and, you know, I'm glad, uh, you know, it spoke to you. 
you know, how, you know, what kind of rehearsal time did Theo give you? Because I'm, I'm sure, as you know, there are some directors, some projects, there is no time. Uh, you've got to just dive in. But here, because of all of the moving parts, I'm curious, and the relationships that had to be built up, I'm curious if you did get rehearsal time, uh, particularly when it came to working with Kirby. Um, mm. Kirby and, and actually Frank Whaley. Uh, yeah. Those two very, very significant uh, relationships, part of the prong that, that comprises who Frank becomes. Yeah. Well, to, to answer that, you know, I was I was fortunate enough that uh, the production and Greg Reed, um, they they paid for me to have some tutoring on the role. Cause, you know, I, as I mentioned, I had the role for a year, so mm -hmm. it's only so many times you can read it without kind of getting some other eyes on. It. And Lisa Robertson uh, is an Australian acting coach, lives over here in LA, and she's absolutely phenomenal. And I was lucky enough to have ten hours private tutoring over a number of months. So I was really able to, um, you know, use her um, techniques and kind of delve deeply into the emotional side, like, like, you, like you mentioned, because there's a really huge arc for Frank to mm -hmm. go through and a lot of questions as an actor that, that I had. And Lisa helped me kind of figure those out. Um, so with regards to rehearsal time, um, uh, you know, we I, I think I met, Kirby, maybe you know, a few weeks before we shot, and you know, we got along really well, and uh, you know, we definitely did some, some some rehearsal. But it was, you know, and Frank Braley, I just kind of met on the day, and there wasn't so much rehearsal there. Um, but you know, I think because we all knew our characters so well, and we kind of just kept it fresh. Um, but rehearsal was it wasn't it wasn't a whole lot of rehearsal. But you know, as you said, in film, there's not generally as much like I've done a lot of, lot of theatre where you have. Mm -hmm. you know, two months of rehearsals, nine or six, five days a week kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but this was kind of more just having the, the chemistry and the connection and, and understanding the backstory and then letting it roll and, and uh, let's see what happens organically in the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious because you do come out of theater and you are theater trained. And yeah, with the theater, you go out there. You have to be well prepared. You have to be well rehearsed. You walk out there and that's it. That moment is all you have. <laughs> it's, it's not like with film or television where and especially today, where things you're not shooting on film most of the time, you know it's all mm. going to an SD card, and you know, hey, keep going, keep going, keep going. You know, how many yep. how many takes were you? Are you still a person because of that theater training that you really want to get it on the first take? Uh, I, I, you know, obviously you love to get it on the first take. You want to get it on every take that you're doing. Um, you know, the beauty of doing it on digital is that you can do different options. Uh, the reality on this shoot was that, you know, the budget was, you know, we were really, you know, streamlining the budget and, and time was always a factor, you know, trying to beat sunlight and all that kind of stuff. But we really only took like one or two takes on each kind of shot. So <clears throat> I'd say definitely two takes, but, you know, a third take was a rarity. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, to be fair, when I do auditions, self-auditions, that's the ones where you do time and time again because you don't have the crew. You, you just, it's just you. You're trying to get perfected. So I, I'm all for another take. You know, if I can get another take, if I can even watch it back and see what I did and see what mm -hmm. I can do, 
I would love that. But the reality on a set like that is that, you know, time is money and you don't always have that uh, opportunity. And how helpful is it for you when you are working opposite actors, the caliber of your fellow castmates here? Who also, you know, it's like, I mean, you look at Bruce Davison and Robert Pine, who have been around forever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back when all there was was film. So it was, you need to hit your mark, you need to know what you're doing, and you need to bring it in in a couple of takes. You don't have the luxury. Yeah. Um, So does that help you up your game? A thousand percent. It's You know, it's like playing tennis against somebody that's, you know, not of your level, the rally isn't going to be as good. But if you're playing against Roger Federer, you know, he's going to get them all back. It's up to you to kind of step up to that level. Um, so, you know, you know, the scenes that I had with Bruce Davison were just an absolute dream. You know, he's a guy that, you know, won, you know, Golden Globes. And uh, and, and I just like got off the plane from Australia. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was... It was a real dream, and you know, also with like Robert Pine, like both of them, and pretty much everyone else in the cast were so generous with their time. And you know, we had the opportunity to kind of go through the scenes. It not, wasn't necessarily a lot of rehearsal, mm-hmm. but we talk about the intentions and the emotions, and particularly in some of the scenes, you know, I have are quite emotional, and they're the kind of things that you don't know how you're going to play or how you're going to feel in the moment because you can't really rehearse them until they're happening and right. until you layer the given circumstances on and, and you're seeing what the actor across from you. You know, one of the scenes with Christian Guinea, um, who plays the first Wish Kid, mm-hmm. all his stuff, he's, he's, he's a seasoned vet at, you know, eight years old. He's amazing. Like, he's done more television than most, you know, actors out there. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, just to have... You know that gravity in in a somebody so young and youthful, and to be able to play that, and the emotion of the writing, Theo's writing was just so delicate and well crafted. It wasn't overspoken; like it was just stripped back and you know, allowed the actors just to sit there in the moment and look at each other, and then the, the emotion comes through, and and that's been, you know, shown in our audiences. That you know, we had two screenings at the Cannes Film Festival, and we had standing ovations. And audiences are in tears because of this writing and this moment for, for the actors to let it breathe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a real dream. There's a great simplicity uh, to Theo's writing. It's very unfettered. It's clean. It's simple. It's basic. A lot of the film is just letting it breathe, particularly with your performance, um, because playing Frank, very introspective man. Uh, he's hmm. he's not ve- he's not very extroverted. Most of what's going. Hey, a few words. Yes, very much so. And there's some beautiful, beautiful imagery that Theo has captured, with you just looking out, thinking, hmm. pondering, you know, questioning your own life. And he carries that through from a young Frank up through you. And I like that continuity that Theo brought. Hmm between the younger the younger and the older Frank. And, and wasn't Chris Day the young Frank fantastic? Oh. How'd you get so lucky to have a young a, a young person like that play you? <laughs> I, I did none of the casting. Helen McCready is the casting director there, so she did a fantastic job. And uh, again I had to step up my because I saw his emotional scenes before I did mine, so I'm like, oh I better I better be good because this kid's killing it. Twelve years old. <laughs> 
<laughs> Doesn't yeah. it make you feel old? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, definitely older than him. You know, before before we run out of time today, talk to me about. I want everybody to find hear about your flicks for change. Uh, dot org. Okay, beautiful. Because it's not just Frank, who's, right. a, who's a great philanthropist by founding Make-A-Wish. You are as well. And they always say, you know, like minds are attracted. And clearly, your like mind and Frank's like, were definitely attracted. So I want to hear about your Flicks for Change. Sure. Well, Flicks for Change is, is, a, is a socially conscious film festival and a production company. Uh, the festival side focuses on short films with important social messages. And then we bring in the uh, the nonprofits that, that work in the spaces. We mm-hmm. inspire the audience to want to take action through watching these fantastic films. And then we connect them with the difference makers who are the nonprofits, who are the boots on the ground doing you know important activism around the world. Um, so we have festivals in Sydney, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles, where we started. We're in our third year at the moment, and we're branching out into being a production company as well. So... You know, we're fielding offers for feature films uh, and short films that uh, have have you know these you know these important social messages, and then we're not been getting funding and all that stuff. We've also started a, um, a competition called Scripts for Change, so we take 20, 20 page and under short films uh, with important social messages, uh, short scripts, and then we'll produce the winning script that we think has the best message to say. And we've also uh, been in talks with Kodak about you know getting. Uh, film to, film stuff to actually shoot on oh. um, for, for the winning script. So that's really exciting, and uh, yeah, that's where we're at at the moment. Now, do you see yourself heading in the direction of producing and really and really working with the with scripts for change, flicks for change? You know, more mm-hmm. than acting, or are you trying to find a happy medium and a balance between the two? Yeah, I think I think a bit of both, definitely. Uh, I'll always, always, you know, you know, acting is, you know, absolutely love it, and I definitely want to always get involved. But I am producing stuff, and Flicks for Change is also, you know, collaborating. Um, there's a film called Kent State, and I'm sure you're familiar with the 1970 shootings at Kent State. Absolutely, uh, it's, it's fantastic. You know, we've got um, so we're so Flicks for Change are co-producing that, um, and uh, and with Lucidity uh, Entertainment. And Jim Gaffigan's in the lead, um, uh, Alexandria Daddario, Patrick Schwarzenegger. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll have a little role in there as well myself. Um, but, you know, we're just getting these stories that, that, that need to be out there. Um, and, and we're finding, uh, you know, the people that can help us sing it from the, the mountaintops. And, uh, you know, there's so many important uh, uh, stories that need to be told and, and we want to get to the audience so that they can actually do something about it. Well, right now, what people can do something about is tomorrow night, you've got a red carpet premiere here in L.A. of Wishman. That's right. At the Egyptian Theater, yeah. Which is a beautiful, four, beautiful four venue. Beautiful venue. Yeah. yeah. And then... venue. Also non-profit, which is fantastic. And, of course, then in San Diego, you have... Another premiere down in San Diego on the fifth, and then Prescott, Arizona, Frank's home, Frank's hometown, uh, on June sixth, and then everybody can see the film on June seventh when it opens up. That's that's right, and just to 
slight clarification, Gene 6 is in, is in Phoenix. Oh, it's um, in Phoenix. Okay. So, but, and then Gene 7th is in Prescott for the for the uh, for the opening uh, of the uh, the opening night of the Prescott Film Festival. Ah, uh-huh. well, I can't encourage people highly enough to see Wishman. It's amazing. And what's next for you after once Wishman is now released in the world? Any more U.S. films coming up? Yeah, well, I mean, Kent, Kent State is our next one. We're shooting that in July. Right. Um, so that's exciting. And, you know, I'm very excited to say that, you know, after our screenings in Cannes, I got offered a couple of scripts with some leading roles in it for me. So now it's, uh, it's a beautiful position that I, you know, I, I get the some people are interested in, in working with me further. So I just, I just working out those relationships and, and finding what I want. Well, all I can say is my wish is that we see a whole lot more of you, Andrew, because you are just, you're fabulous in Wishman. Ah, thanks so much, Debbie. I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for, you know, actually really, you know, knowing, knowing Wishman and, and believing in it. So we appreciate it. Oh, my, it's a privilege. It is a privilege to see films like this and get to talk to filmmakers and talent like yourself, Andrew. And I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> and I'm going to hold you to it, too. Oh, Andrew, right. thank you so much, and I'll okay. talk to you soon. Okay, perfect. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye. And that was Andrew Steele talking about Wishman. Two, two absolute, three winning films we talked about today. Pavarotti opens on Friday the 7th. Wishman opens on Friday the 7th. Child Remains uh, tomorrow and Friday the 7th. Three winners, people. And it's something for everyone, be it the, document, the Pavarotti documentary, be it a quote-unquote horror thriller, psychological thriller like The Child Remains, or... A message of, of upbeat positivity uh, with Wishman. Well, that is all the time we have today. Next week, we're going to be talking about Appleseed, Rance Howard, Clint Howard, and Ron Howard. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>